Hey, this is Stephen, and I want to welcome you or welcome you back to the Grove Church Podcast. For more information or to find more resources like this one, be sure to visit us at grove.org. Thanks for listening, and I hope the following message is encouraging and meaningful to your life. It's not every Sunday that we get to hear Hall & Oates in church. Uh, and if y'all are confused why we're singing Hall and Oates in church, we are in the middle of a sermon series called Love Songs that we are really excited about. We've been listening to all of these love songs over the course of the last month as we prepare for the series, and some of them just stuck with us, and we knew that we had to share them with you. So we hope that you appreciate our band taking on that extra, uh, that extra task for them to perform that song. Um, we're excited that they get to do that in here. So... The last few weeks, we've been thinking about love songs, and last week we delivered this message about what it meant to listen to all these love songs. What effect does it have on our relationships? What effect does it have on our romantic relationships specifically? And I think it it actually has a pretty big effect. You see, we, we learn about love not just from what we experience and what we see, but also what we hear. And over time, as we listen to all of this music around us, which most of it is about love, we start to internalize these messages. And some of them are positive messages, but some of them are ones that we need to press pause on, that we need to think about and question. And so last week, Stephen introduced this message that gets in every love song. Now that you know it, you'll hear it in every love song. It's this idea that there's a right person for me. And once I find the right person, everything will be all right. That's what all those love songs are about, right? That there's this one person that we have to find. And if we find that right person, then everything will be solved. Our lives will be okay. And last week we talked about how that leads to a tendency that when we're in relationships and it's not working, things aren't going well, we often move to the next person. We think it's about the person. It's because we didn't choose correctly. And so we end up finding a new relationship with a new person because surely that will be the right person. And we go on patterns like this looking for the right person when in fact that wasn't what it was about at all. But for some of us, we feel like we actually did choose the right person. We entered into a relationship based on similar qualities of life, we valued similar things, there was chemistry there, we made the right choice. But what we find is even though we think we chose the right person, everything is still not all right. A few years, a few months, a few decades into a marriage or a relationship or a partnership, things don't feel like they should. And we start wondering why that is. I think it's because we're internalizing this second message that we'll talk about in a minute. This message that comes from love songs that is exemplified in that Hall and Oates song perfectly. And we'll lead up to what that message is. But first, I think we need to look back to understand where we are. We need to look back at the history of how we interpret marriage and partnership. So we're going to jump all the way back because sociologists have been studying this for about a few decades, since the 70s. And they've been looking at how the expectations on marriage have changed. And I'm going to use the language of marriage because that's what the studies and the sociologists use. But you can expect, expound this to any relationship that you're in, any committed romantic relationship that you're in. 
So sociologists often start with this idea of a pragmatic marriage, right? They say before the 1880s, marriage was very simple. It was an economic institution, that's what it was. And mostly it was there to provide safety and security because it was through a marriage that you could have children. And unlike today, children were economic contributors to the household back then, right? <laughs> and so they were essential to your safety and security. You could have more people in your household and therefore you could survive the drought, you could prepare for the fire. There was more people in your household when you were married. And love wasn't even a part of the equation because that didn't really matter. It was an economic exchange. I will be married to you because that's how we're gonna guarantee our security. And as I was looking for love songs in this era, specifically in the 1800s, and there were, there were tons of popular songs. There were tons of songs. And so I was looking through this list of popular songs, trying to find one love song, just one. I just needed one love song. And y'all, the closest I got to a romantic song in the 1800s was this. I've been working on the railroad all the long day. That's it. That's the closest I got. You know what was popular in the 1800s in music? Yankee Doodle Dandy, Happy Birthday, and I've been working on the railroad. No one sang about love because it wasn't a thing in their marriages. Why would you sing about the pragmatism of marriage? And this right here, this is what sociologists attribute as the base need of those marriages. It was safety and security. That's what we needed out of marriage. And so that's what we got out of marriage. And that was before the 1880s. But then something happened in the 1880s. Something changed. For those of you who are history nerds, you know that around the 1880s is when we started industrializing. And all of a sudden, you had all of these young people who could make their own money, and they moved away from their parents for the first time and moved to urban centers. And when they did, everything changed. Everything changed, including how we look at marriage, including our expectations for long-term relationships. They didn't need to provide safety and security in their relationships anymore. They could do that on their own. They had money. The standards of living rose dramatically. They didn't need to be protected from a drought or fire by being married. That wasn't what they needed out of marriage. But instead of dismissing what marriage needed to be, they decided to, to redefine it. And for most sociologists, they call this the companionate era, the companionate era of marriage, and it's in between the 1880s and 1965, specifically 1965, I'm not sure why, but specifically 1965. It's this idea of a companionate marriage. And you know what we added on to marriage in terms of expectations? So it wasn't just safety and security. Now we added the expectation of love, of love and belonging. It was the dawn of this idea that marriage could be personally fulfilling. And that scared a lot of people. They weren't sure marriage would survive if marriage were going to be solely about personal fulfillment. But it did, because people gravitated toward this idea of our marriage can provide love and belonging for us. And that's where you get tons of love songs come out in this era about what it means to fall in love. For the first time, people are talking about it, and they're talking about it in terms of marriage. So as I was thinking about what song exemplified this love and belonging need in the companion era, I stuck with Frank Sinatra, classic. Love and marriage, love and marriage, go together like 
like a horse and carriage this i tell you brother you can't have one without the other doesn't that exemplify like the 50s in terms of what we think about what love became at the very end of this era and the late 1950s into the 60s it was assumed that a marriage was based on love and that was drastically different from centuries and centuries before in a span of not not quite 100 years we had completely redefined what marriage was but then but then we had this one last change the change that changed how we hear love songs today you see this wasn't enough for us because the 1960s happened Freddie Ferdinand happened Timothy Leary happened things happened and we entered into this new phase of marriage this idea of a soulmate marriage you see people started questioning what it meant to be in a marriage they started questioning the traditions behind it the purpose behind it we could get love and belonging out of other communities and other people why did we need to be married what was marriage really for and at the same time that we started pursuing this there became this new train of thought that was relatively new in the 1960s was that we as people can become better and that seems like a given today but it wasn't it wasn't a given you know the 1960s is when we started investing all of this energy in these paths of self discovery we started going on retreats we started investing in fitness classes we started being interested in spirituality and we thought if we pursue these things then we can grow and we took that same notion and we moved it into our expectations of marriage so the last thing that we added onto this mountain of marriage was this idea that our partner was responsible for our personal growth sociologists use this image of Michelangelo this is called the unfinished captive and how we look at marriage now and how we see ourselves is that we think that there is this authentic fullest version of ourselves the most meaningful version of our life is inside this statue and now it is partly our partner's job to help us figure out how to get the statue out of the stone that's where we've gone in terms of the expectation of marriage and you can't imagine how different this is than i've been working on a railroad right and i don't think there's a single better song that exemplifies all of this and this is one of my favorite love songs of all time so we're going to play it even though it's on Steven's playlist so i'll never hear the end of this but chicago ready y'all right you're the meaning in my life you're the inspiration listen to those lyrics but the funny part is like even though we look at that we're like god that's so cheesy that that is sometimes what we bring in to our relationship i mean that's what we write on those valentines cards that you sent a few days ago is it not 
You might not have written, you're my meaning and you're my inspiration, but I guarantee you wrote something like, you're my everything, or you complete me, or you're the perfect person for me. I'm so glad I met you because you fulfill all of my needs. You wrote something like that. Otherwise, I'm really sorry if you received a card that didn't say something like that because that's the expectation, right? That's the expectation for romance and for marriage and for partnerships these days. And so we receive this message, not just from the songs, but from the movies, from the things that we take in in our world. And we receive a message that sounds like this. The right relationship will fulfill all of my hopes, of my dreams, of my wishes, of my needs. It'll fulfill everything in me. Over time, as we start to listen and take on this message, sociologists and relationship experts have noticed this trend. And I think Esther Perel sums it up beautifully, so I'm gonna put her quote up here. This is how she describes the trend that we see when we internalize this message. Marriage was an economic institution in which you were given a partnership for life in terms of children and social status and succession and companionship. But now, we want our partner to still give us all these things. But in addition, I want you to be my best friend, and my trusted confidant, and my passionate lover to boot, and we live twice as long. <laughs> she continues, so we come to one person, and we are basically are asking them to give us what once an entire village used to provide. Give me belonging, give me identity, give me continuity, but give me transcendence, and mystery and awe all in one. The soulmate marriage is an impossible task. The idea that one person could take on all of your wants and your needs and your desires, which by the way, change rapidly all the time, that they could take that on is a fairy tale. And yet, that is what the world tells us repeatedly, over and over and over again. It is no wonder that so many of us are disappointed in our marriage. We're disappointed in our relationships. We feel like we're not getting enough out of it. Now, I actually don't think that the answer is to go back down the mountain. I don't think that the answer is to just take off that personal growth thing. We just need to go back to the companion era. Because we have to acknowledge that there have been some really good things that have happened as we've shifted into this new definition of marriage. Right? There's, it's allowed a lot of people out of bad marriages, marriages characterized by adultery or abuse or ambivalence. It's expanded the definition of what marriage can be. It's allowed for more gender equality in marriage. There have been good shifts as we've risen the expectation of marriage. And actually, even though overall marriage quality is declining, the people who have the best marriages, who report the best marriages, they're way happier than couples who are measured in the companionate marriage. We are achieving better marriages. If we're able to get to the top, we're achieving better marriages. So it's not all bad. 
You see, the problem isn't that we expect our partner to help us to grow. It's that we expect our partner to be solely responsible for our growth. The problem isn't that we expect our partner to help us to grow. The problem is that we expect our partner to be solely responsible for our personal growth. And unfortunately, our behaviors, what we do in marriage, it reflects that. So what we're going to do over the next bit is we're going to talk through what some of those behaviors are, how we are acting in our relationships. And then we'll talk about what's a few ways that we can change those behaviors. You see, the first one that people point out is that for married people, as soon as you get married, you cut your social network in half. Most people do. Married people spend less time socializing with friends, with neighbors, with their parents, with their siblings than never married people or people who've been previously married. By a lot. We cut our social networks in half when we get married, and that trend is getting worse. And this is an example of, of what happens. So this is, let's call her Katie. And Katie's 28, so this is before she got married. And before she got married, she had five friends that helped her achieve these personal growth goals of hers. So she saw them at regular intervals. She had one friend that she joined a CrossFit gym with and she saw every week. She had one childhood friend that they went on a camping trip every year and that fulfilled her sense of adventure. She went and played in a band every month and that fulfilled her need for artistic expression. She had a large social network and she made sure that she diversified, that she had lots of different people to fill those needs. Well, then Katie turns 35 and gets married and has kids and suddenly, this is the life that she finds herself in, and I think a lot of us find ourselves in. Suddenly, we have still all those needs, but we don't have as many friends to fill them. Those people have fallen out in our lives, and we haven't taken the time to reinvest those relationships. And so we put all of those needs on the one person who's readily available, who we literally live with, and we put all of those things on him, and then guess what? He's not that good at all five. Like, no one can be that good at all five. And that's what those lines mean. He might be good at, like, they might be one of those couples who does CrossFit together, which I don't understand. But there are those people in the world, right? And so maybe they have that in common. Maybe they're in the same career, so they talk about career goals, and he fulfills that need for her. But the other three, the middle three, he doesn't fulfill. And what happens over time is that Katie gets really annoyed. She gets, well, how are we supposed to be together if you don't have the same sense of adventure as me? Why won't you go camping with me? Like, that must mean there's something off with us. I really want you to grow in this area, and I want you to do this with me because we're supposed to do everything together because you're supposed to be my everything. And over time, resentment builds on both sides because James, her husband, he can't fulfill what Katie needs, even though intellectually we understand that James can't be all of those things. And y'all know what this looks like. I know because I talked to a lot of you over coffee. And I had this own experience in my own marriage. Sorry, Dan, we're going to bring this up. So <laughs> about two or three years into the marriage, I, 
Uh, I love like talking about ideas. I love reading articles. I love thinking about things deeply. And so I was like really expecting that Dan would love this too. Let newsflash, he does not. It is not something he loves. And so I, for two years, maybe three, would get really mad. Would get so frustrated that this meant that there was something wrong with our marriage. There was something innately wrong. Maybe I'd chosen the wrong person. Maybe something was not quite right. And then I went to lunch with a friend who was a doctorate student. And we talked for a long time, I don't remember about what, but something really heady and deep. And I came home and I remember feeling like so relieved. Like I had had this conversation that I'd been wanting to have for a really long time. I remember talking to Dan about it and he said, I'm so glad that you have her to talk to. And it readjusted my whole frame of reference. You see, Dan doesn't have to fulfill that need in me. That's not something that he loves. He fulfills lots of other things that help me grow. But I have to start looking outside of my marriage in order to grow. And so the first thing that we need to do when we change our behaviors, we have to start diversifying our social portfolio. We have to start looking outside of our marriage for things that can't be met there. And I know that this can be a slippery slope, and some of you have lived in that slippery slope, but there are ways to do it that protect your marriage. There are ways to have relationships outside of marriage, even really deep emotional ones, that still protect your marriage. Have those people into your house often. Invite them over for dinner. Have your spouse come join you a few times, even if they aren't interested in it. Let that be open and not a secret so that you can maintain those relationships outside of your marriage and fulfill the needs that you need to fulfill. So the first thing that we need to do, the first change that we need to make, is we have to start looking for people and relationships outside of our marriage in order to fulfill those goals that we have for ourselves. The second thing, feels like it's a contradiction, but just bear with me. The second behavior that we are currently immersed in in our marriage that we need to change is this idea of time spent with your spouse. See, there's this whole idea of the mountain, right, that I showed you, the mountain of marriage. And the sociologist who came up with that says, like, it's just like a mountain. Like, as you get closer to the top, the air gets thinner. And when it gets thinner, you need additional resources to make that happen. There's no way you're gonna survive on the top of the mountain if you don't have extra oxygen tanks. I don't really know about mountaineering, but I assume you need oxygen tanks. You can't survive on the top of the mountain without extra resources. And for marriage, primarily that means time. That means quality time. So because our expectations of marriage are higher, we should be spending more time with our spouse. But we're not. We're spending significantly less time with our spouse. In 1975, married people without kids spent 35 hours per week together. In 2003, and that was 17 years ago, they spent 26 hours per week together. It's dropping, and I guarantee you if the study were done today, it's dropped even further. We're spending less time with our spouse. And this one, this one is terrifying if you have children. So married people with kids spent 13 hours in 1975. Do you know how much we spend now? Nine. Nine. Nine hours does not a relationship make. Nine hours per week. That's it. That's all you got. 
If we truly want to ascend and have better marriages, if we want to pursue a new marriage, if we want to build a relationship, we have to spend more quality time with each other. And I chose the word quality time on purpose, because let me tell you about time. This is what happens to all of us, and it certainly happens to me. We schedule coffee dates or lunches. We're like, great, I blocked off an hour. Like, this is gonna be our time of bonding, and we're gonna show up, and guess what happens at that lunch? It's not so great. You end up talking about the kids, or you talk about something else, and it's not, it seems very busy, and you feel even more disconnected than when you got into it. And you're a little bit discouraged, because you're like, wait, I put, I put quality time into this. Like, I invested, and it didn't work. Well, here's the thing about quality time. One of my New York, one of my favorite New York Times columnists writes about this. He goes, quality time is essentially has to be based on spontaneity. Quality bonding and intimacy help happens when you allow for spontaneity. So what do we do? What do we do in that moment? I think one of the answers is that we need uninterrupted time and lots of it. For me in my life, this looks like vacation. <laughs> and if that, I'm serious. And if that is something that you can do, if that's something you can afford, I cannot stress it enough because let me tell you, that is a block of time where you allow for natural conversations to happen and you carve it out. It isn't just a lunch every week, although that's important. It allows for deeper intimacy the longer that you're together. And let me also tell you, if you have kids in your house, it does not count if your kids are asleep or if your kids are in the house. Because what I've seen happen in myself, what I've seen happen in parents, is that one half of your brain is thinking about the kids, no matter if you're trying to interact with your spouse. And it's not true quality time. It doesn't really count. You have to get out of the space that you're in. And you have to be able to connect in a way that is meaningful. So the second thing that we need to do, that we need to change, is that we have to spend more quality time with our spouse. Way more than nine hours. That's our goal this week, all right? If you have, don't have kids in your house, you gotta beat 26, good luck. But if you have kids in your house, then nine is, is our limit, all right? So we're gonna spend more quality time with our spouse. And the last behavior is actually the most complicated, and it's not one that's talked about in sociology or any relationship book that I've read. Um, but I think it's the most important. I, I believe that actually this is the one that needs to shift the most. And it centers on this behavior that we have of a whole different set of expectations that we put on our spouse. We take this whole idea of personal growth and we expect this. We expect our partner to fix us, to complete us, to improve us, to make us better people. We expect them to do this on our own. There's, there's literally a song called Fix You by Coldplay that was super popular for years, right? Like the idea of complete you, I wasn't joking when you wrote that in your Valentine's Day card, it comes from Jerry Maguire. And that's like notably one of the most romantic scenes, right? That he shows up to a house and tells her that she completes him. And we can think of nothing better because secretly, deep down, I think a lot of us fall into the category of expecting this out of our spouse. We expect that our spouse will take our grief, 
will take our restlessness, will take our yearning for something more, and that they'll change it, that they'll make it better, that they'll fix it somehow. And when they don't, we get angry and resentful. Bitterness starts to grow, and over time, that bitterness forces you apart, gradually at first, and then pretty drastically. So I think the change that we have to make is this idea that comes from Scripture. It's called give to God's what is God's. And some of you are wondering when in the world I was going to talk about God in this sermon. Some of you didn't even notice, which is a whole different thing. But this comes from Scripture. It's actually a line out of Mark in the gospel. And he's actually talking about taxes. So the Pharisees ask him, like, should we pay taxes to Caesar, to the Roman government? And he responds, Jesus does, he says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. And there are lots of different interpretations of this verse, some of them talking about state and government and taxes and what that has to do with it. But my interpretation for the, this context when we're talking about relationship is when I read this in the context of marriage, in the context of soulmate marriages and what that means, I think there are some things that absolutely can be solved by worldly institutions. There are some things that you can invest your time and energy in, that we can make concerted effort to change, that we can try and make that happen. But there are other things. There are other things that no human can do. Those things, that's what we have to give to God. You see, you want your partner to fix you and complete you and improve you, but those those are actually things that literally only God can do. So what does that mean? What does that mean to give God what is God's? What does that look like in your life? Well, we use the analogy of a faith journey, which Stephen referred to, and this idea of taking steps here. Because truly, that's what we believe it looks like. Because if you want to start giving to God what is God, the first place you start is a relationship with God. And I don't know what next step you need to take in order to move that relationship forward. For some of you, it's personal. It's in your own home. It's cracking up, open a Bible that you haven't cracked open in a long time, maybe ordering one off Amazon. For some of you, it's researching what prayers are and printing them out and then putting them somewhere so they can pray them regularly. It's for some of you exploring this idea of quiet time and waking up early. Maybe that is your next step. For some of you, it's coming here more regularly, showing up again next week. That's your next step. That's how you show commitment to God. That's how you move the ball forward. We have Mardi Gras and Ash Wednesday coming up. For some of you, it's showing up to those things for putting yourself out there to show God that this is the commitment you're going to make because you know that if you invest in this relationship, then God can fix you, can complete you, and can make you a better person. I don't know what your next step is. I don't know what your relationship with God looks like. But whatever it is, the source of your dissatisfaction in your own marriage can be solved by leaning into that relationship with God, by taking that next step. 
And so some of you, I'm going to end with this, some of you might be wondering, well, great, that's what God does. Well, what does my spouse do? Like, what does Scripture actually tell me that my spouse should do? Um, And I think there's this great verse that's used in Hebrews, and I'm going to leave you with this because I think it's etched in a lot of wedding rings. I think it's really important. Paul isn't really even talking about marriage, but I think you can put it as a way to talk about marriage because here's my thing. I hope, I hope that this is what your marriage looks like. I hope that let us consider how we may spur one another on in love and good deeds is exactly how you feel about your spouse. I hope that if you aren't married and want to be married, that that is the relationship that you seek. Wherever you are in your relationship journey, this is the basis of what it means to be in Christian relationship with each other. So I pray this over you for all your relationships, no matter what status they're in, that this may be the central truth in your life of what you can accomplish in your own marriage. Let us pray. Jesus, I pray over all of the relationships in this room. I pray over the hearts in this room, those who long for a relationship, those who are in relationships they don't feel satisfied in, those who are happy in their relationships as they are, whatever the status that we come to this place. Lord, I ask that you may fill our hearts with gladness and knowing that there is someone that we can rely on, someone greater than us, someone who can help us achieve those goals that we long for, and that is you. Jesus, we're so thankful that we have that truth to rest on. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Dallas area, we would love for you to visit us. For directions, service times, and more info, visit us at grove.org.